Welcome to Stelligence DevOps on AWS Radio. Welcome to our 28th episode of DevOps on AWS Radio. I'm Scott Alexander, Senior DevOps Automation Engineer at Stelligent. I'm Shag Evans. I'm also a Senior DevOps Automation Engineer here at Stelligent. And I'm Keith Monahan, also a Senior DevOps Automation Engineer here at Stelligent. Welcome to the podcast, Keith. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you can listen to our previous episodes by searching for DevOps on AWS Radio or going to Stelligent's blog at stelligent.com slash blog. We're on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and recently now on Google Podcast. Keith joins us today to talk about the Stelligent Book Club and how it helps foster a culture of sharing here. But first, I had the chance to interview Canard McQuaid, creator of Cloud Splaining and Policy Sentry. With me now is Canard McQuaid, the lead security engineer at Salesforce. I came across his contact information and, and him on Twitter when I was talking with another engineer and he said, you have to check out what they're doing. Uh, they had two tools that were out there and he showed me both of them and they were really cool. So I, so I took that opportunity. I reached out on Twitter, DM'd him and said, would you be interested in coming on the podcast? So he's joining me today to talk about the two tools. Canard, if you want to give a quick introduction of yourself, tell us who you are and then we'll dig into some questions. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. I'm Kinnaird McQuaid, uh, lead security engineer at Salesforce. My background's in application security, cloud security, security automation, and I've done a lot of work in uh, automating AWS security, especially. That's a huge part of the two tools that you put out there is trying to look at security and, and basically automating that to create more secure environments. So the two tools, uh, the first one is Policy Sentry. That's been around a little while. And the newest one, what was it, about a month ago, called Cloudsplaining. Yep, yep. All right. And I, I, to put it in context, when I first looked at your website, Cloudsplaining wasn't even listed yet. It was still so new that it hadn't even been listed. So yeah. uh, tell us a bit about that. It's brand new uh, open source release. How have people responded to it? What have people said? What's the feedback? So the reception from the community has been really solid. I've gotten a lot of uh, really good feedback, and it seems like this helps identify some, some difficult pain points in AWS security that people are dealing with, where Policy Sentry focused on authoring secure IAM policies, creating policies with least privilege uh, access by default. Cloudsplaining helps identify all the policies where that could be used. So it helps identify where somebody could exfiltrate data. So S3 get object open to everybody, like privilege escalation opportunities, uh, unrestricted infrastructure modification, where uh, engineers might be using uh, over-permissive uh, AWS managed policies, especially by default uh, in their deployments. Here, they're able to identify where they can uplift all their previous IAM and then where they can author those secure policies by default. So yeah, a lot of people have been really interested in it. Good to hear, yeah, that can, uh, IAM policies, they, they are a double-edged sword, and it is an incredible the amount of power you have with them, but yeah. at the same point, making sure you're doing them right. So the first tool, Policy Sentry, took an approach to that to try and make it simpler to manage the IAM policies. And what was your approach there? How did you set that tool up to work and make it easier? Well, a lot of it was inspired by my 
uh, experience with implementation and building out production systems. And then in my previous consulting experience, uh, being in the position of somebody who has to help those uh, their customers write those IAM policies securely. And that usually ends up taking place a lot later in development, right before something gets pushed out to production in that uh, old school waterfall model that uh, security is often placed in, right? So being somebody who's put those systems into production before, I knew that a lot of infrastructure as code developers, anybody who's developing those systems, they've all been in the spot where they're trying to get something to to work and they'll try to put together least privilege IAM policies and they end up scouring through the documentation and trying to lock it down. But eventually maybe their team lead or their project manager is pushing them to meet deadlines and they don't have a security person on their team. It'll take too long to put through a request and they realize, oh man, it would be great to have some level of automation that would do this for me, but I got to get my job done. So I'm just going to use managed policies and that's over permissive by default, right? So I'm really passionate about making security easier for people. The approach here is pretty cool. You just say, here's what I need access to and here's the access level. Now go create the IAM policy for me. So it abstracts that level of complexity and at the easy, at the simplest level, it's really copying and pasting resource arns into a YAML file and running a command. And so the resources, any AWS resource, an EC2 instance, an S3 bucket, uh, you know, anything along that line, even a Lambda function, and then the, the access level, how, how is the access level managed since each of those are kind of unique? There's a create template command that will actually go create the YAML file for you so you don't have to remember how it's structured. And it's divided into a few different sections. The main sections are read, write, list, permissions management, and tagging. And so you just list out the resource arms that you need access to under those, and it'll go create it for you. Very nice, very nice. And especially that being able to generate the template is, is super helpful because like you say, for so many people, they need to do their job. Yeah. And that's what their end goal is. I have a job. I have a ticket that I'm working on. I have a program I'm writing. I want to do this securely, but I need to be able to do it in the context of getting my job done. And I can't go spend a month learning IAM principles. So this is really cool to be in, you know, talking about a tool that saves people that problem or, you know, saves the trouble, makes it easier for them to just go out there, get their work done at the end of the day. So yeah, definitely give that a try for anyone who's out there listening. Um, that's a really good start and something that you can implement and be able to add to your pipelines just to generate those policies and make it work to have an easier time and a more secure time. Now we move over to cloud explaining. This one's a little more complex because that goal of least privilege, we all want it, but it's, it's difficult to get there and analyze and figure out exactly what is the minimum I can get away with you've written a tool to help people get there. So say I have a, a policy that's out there, you know, that exists for my application and I, I pull up cloud explaining and start running it. What does cloud explaining do to be able to help understand here's permission you don't need? What it does is, um, so I was inspired to create that kind of from the feedback that I got from policy Sentry, where people said policy Sentry is fantastic and it can help me write secure policies from now on. We've created all these policies in our accounts so far. How do I figure out which ones we need to fix? So where can it be fixed exactly? How do we automate that? So uh, cloud explaining will 
go scan through all the IAM details in your account, and it'll look at each of the policies that you have. It uses the policy sentry logic to parse through it, expand those action, those wildcard actions, and then identify where you should be able to practice resource RNs, but where you're not. And it'll go generate, um, there's a mode to scan individual policy files. So that can be used in like a CI pipeline. You can uh, also scan an entire account. And uh, it's especially assessor friendly for uh, if you're doing a pen test and you're trying to figure out, okay, I have all these IM details. What are the principles that I would want to, that I would want to, uh, like if I want to get access to an S3 bucket, what principle do I have to compromise in order to get that, right? So that's nice. Just being able to have that, and especially for internal teams. I, I've been through that process with an, an internal team that did have that level of information. And so they, they're there, but trying to figure out what to tell them, what they need. We, we were just handing over volumes and volumes of information. And then they're trying to filter through it. So an automated way for them to be able to find, oh, hey, here's here's the roles. Here's where there's ex excessive permission. I'm sure they would have loved to have had something that could have just filtered that down and been like, oh, here's where we should focus all of our effort on. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, part of why I wrote this tool, right, is uh, I've invested a lot of time in learning how to do IM properly, right? But that's uh, doing it at this level where I've had to build out a lot of automation, right? It, um, that's a high barrier to entry. And in my opinion, developers shouldn't have to know how IAM works in that level of detail in order to do it well, and to, in order to do it securely. You know, in the case of credentials compromise, we need to reduce the blast radius. We shouldn't have S3 get object to all these different buckets, right? Shouldn't have KMS decrypt to all these different keys. And that goes for any number of services, right? You know, adding even policies beyond that, like resource policies helps yeah. so much in that because then it, you know, it's that second check that even stops uh, if they're able to get an IAM principle that has an extent, an expanded permission, the resource policy helps in that regard too. But again, like you say, keeping a developer up to speed on all of that is very difficult because yeah. that's not their primary job. Uh, there has to be someone out there who's paying attention to it on the broader scale and helping guide them so they understand and can very easily implement what needs to be done. And that really, you know, there's a whole, you know, DevSecOps movement going on um, that's been happening for a while and adding security to our pipelines and making that more of a front and center thing. When you think about software development and security, what are your thoughts on how we make that easier for everyone? Developers prefer using tools rather than having to have meetings, right? And so I, I like to envision a future in which uh, security is as self-service as possible, right? The spam the UI wizard approach, right? Um, <laughs> that's that's one level. Uh, having Jenkins shared libraries where the developers just have to configure a YAML file in order to uh, set the right settings, right? And if you can capture 95% of security issues or even 80% of security issues through giving the developer um, the ability to go address those issues on their own, then that's a huge victory and you've reduced the workload for your security team. Scalability is most achievable through uh, self-service and for both assessment, uh, remediation, and then collecting that data so security can analyze those metrics and then solve it with automation.
Yeah. And that's, that's the backside of that problem is on the security side, there's an auditing aspect that has to be done. And that's incredibly time consuming if everything's being done manually. If we can move over and have tools that are doing it, all doing as much of that as possible, we save ourselves, especially if it's in pre-deployment, even incidents being created that we have to waste time tracking. Sorry, I shouldn't say yeah. waste time, but you know, we, we have to spend time tracking down just to figure out, okay, what happened? Who did it? What do we need to teach? Uh, versus, oh, hey, that got caught early on, or the, you know, the tool doesn't even allow an insecure configuration to exist. And so therefore we know this, as long as it goes to that tool, we can be, you know, we're in a safer position than we would be if they were doing it manually. So Definitely. I like that. And, yeah. and when you talk about security, you're not just talking about uh, your personal interest here. I mean, you went to college and picked up a bachelor's and a master's degree in cybersecurity, which those had to be pretty new degrees when you picked them up, which, which year was that again? Uh, so I graduated with my bachelor's in IT with concentrations in cybersecurity and uh, computer science in 2015. And I got my master's in cybersecurity in December 2016, both at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. What was involved in, you know, especially the master's degree, um, that, that's a ad pretty advanced step. So what did it take to get a master's with the focus in cybersecurity? Sure, sure. So, of course, there was uh, there were the technical uh, classes, right, with networking and uh, pen testing, et cetera, right? Um, but I think the best part of, about my master's degree and my experience getting that at Marymount, uh, which is a liberal arts college, right? So um, they uh, there was a lot of writing and writing on technical topics. Uh, if you've been out in the field, it's difficult for a lot of people, right? And Writing on technical topics became one of my strong suits, uh, I think, as a result of my master's and working with those professors and uh, refining my papers and making sure that I'm explaining those difficult topics uh, uh, as clearly as possible. Um, that was uh, that was probably the best part of my master's, but it was a lot of writing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I hit that even on just blog posts, trying to get it all down. And I, I've found that I almost have to start at the bottom of the page, like build my outline and then work from the bottom up to eventually get in because I can never get it started. Like I can never write that introductory paragraph, <laughs> but I can just start throwing things at the wall and eventually get to a cohesive article. And so I, I know what you mean, like that, that writing skill is definitely something that needs to be developed. And it's great to see people who have it just because it's such a great way to share. Uh, and you can pass that on and it can really go far beyond what you can do just, you know, inside a company, if you're publishing information, you know, and putting even tools up as open source, the more you put it out there, the more value people get from it. I actually visited, there's the open source sales, the open source Salesforce site. And there's a lot of tools there that Salesforce has put out, you know, into, it is allowed to be released or encouraged to be released. What's it like to create, you know, a new project and open source it at Salesforce? Well, it was pretty cool because I, like many open source projects, I created these ones to solve problems at my job, right? Creating open source software at Salesforce is, it's a pretty good experience. Uh, they, we have like a dedicated um, program for it, and they help with uh, reviewing some of my uh, documentation and some of my code and helping with the blog posts and promotion, which 
helps to develop a community around any uh, tools that we open source. Yeah, it's been a it's been a really good experience. So uh, definitely a learning experience for me, uh, as these were the first ones that I really open sourced and got a lot of traction on. But it's 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 an exciting process. And did you plan like when you started writing these, were you this is going to be an open source project? Or did you just start writing these going, we need, I, I need a tool to help me help developers make this process easier. And at the end of it, you turned around and went, we should really put this out there. Which process did you use on this one? So it was about 50% through. You know, initially when I was building out uh, both of these tools, uh, it started with just me learning how to do it manually and then me scripting uh, part of it. And then I realized that, hey, other people could, uh, other people could use this. Oh, wait, this can automate away part of my job. Oh, wait, I can automate all of this and then it won't have to be part of my job. And uh, <laughs> and so about 50% through all of that, uh, as I got to the point where I wanted other people to go out and try it, I realized pretty, I realized pretty quickly, hey, uh, I might want to open source this. This would help a lot of people. It's it's really cool writing security automation tools because it's, it's really rewarding because it's not just me that's getting value out of it. You know, I'm replicating myself. And so... Uh, I, I like the I'm, thought. I mean, just, you know, and it's true. So, you know, historically speaking, I look back at what's made me most successful. And it's been those places where I've been able to automate myself out of a job because inevitably, if I can automate what I'm doing today, in six months, I have higher value work that I can be accomplishing. Exactly. Exactly. And so talking about replicating your, you know, what you understand and what your skill, there's so much truth and importance in doing that. Because if we're bogged down with what we're trying to get done today and what we're trying to understand today, you know, a year from now, we're still stuck in that same spot. We're probably missing something new that's come along that we need to really be focusing on. And so that that is such a, a central point that I've found in my career, at least. And it sounds like you're finding the same in yours it's better to automate myself out of a job because strangely, as many times as I've done it, I still am employed and I'm doing even more fun stuff today than that was back then. Yeah, definitely. And um, some of the cool moments that have come out of this is with both of these tools, I've gotten, um, I've, and especially with Policy Century, I, uh, I've gotten a few DMs uh, about it um, where somebody will say, hey, you know, I'm from, this household name company uh, that has millions of customers and we've been using your tool for months and I get to go away with that feeling that I didn't even know that was happening <laughs> and uh, I get to I, I know that I'm helping improve the security of of other companies and other and and their customers you know just overnight right uh, even while I'm not working you know and with security, it's rewarding because I know I'm doing something for the greater good, making the internet a little bit more secure. Uh, and you know, we're not uh, like we're. I'm not a doctor. I'm not saving babies or helping people with the virus or uh, et cetera. Right? I am making the. I'm doing my part to help make the internet a little bit safer. Because uh, think about how it would impact, uh, say, a grandmother or a family member, or anybody, if uh, their personal information is compromised. Right? So doing these, this auto security automation and open sourcing that stuff, I feel like 
it's uh, I'm doing my part, right? Definitely. And, and just, yeah, like you say, I mean, it's there's so much out there to be done in this space. It's great to have people that are stepping up and producing it. Uh, are you looking for help on these projects at all? Or is, is, or is it set up for people to be able to jump in and offer yeah. help? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm always trying to uh, help uh, expand the community, especially with these tools. I mean, they're my babies, right? Anybody should feel free to try it out, open a issue on GitHub. If they have like some questions, join the Gitter channel, you know, DM me on Twitter. Uh, you know, you don't have to be, when you're contributing to the open source community, making a pull request is not the only way that, to contribute, right? Asking questions. How many times have uh, we all been saved by some some issue on GitHub that was closed like two years ago, right? You can be that person for somebody else. So that's the way I look at it. Yeah, it's always nice when you, you throw a search in and the first thing you see is a resolved issue <laughs> yeah. on GitHub that perfectly explains, this is your problem and here's how you fix it. And you're like, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I always try and think of these things as... If I am if I have identified a problem, I am not the only person who has noticed it so far. You know, that's how some of this automation comes in place. Uh, why I wrote some of these things, but it's also um, like why it's important for me to speak up about like even a question that I have. Yeah, and I you know, there's also the proverbial story of people who've seen like they they search for a problem they're having and find you know, an article, a, a blog post, a Stack Overflow, a GitHub issue that they actually wrote the resolution of. <laughs> and they're able to thank their, per, you know, previous self for publicly documenting it, you know, and then other people add value to that. And you've got an even better answer when you come back three years later and have forgotten about it entirely. Uh, you know, while we're talking on open source, before we leave that uh, entirely, I should ask, what languages did you write these in? Uh, I wrote those tools in Python. Okay, so Python's the main uh, language. If anybody's looking for a Python project and something to jump into on the security side, sounds like there's a opportunity here. Last questions, uh, moving a little bit away from the tooling, but just as a security person, you're, you're dealing with engineering security in AWS. Um, I have a few people that are following the landing zones and control tower. And when I was looking at your resume and your website, you've done a lot with landing zones. What are your thoughts on that, that transition and what's the right solution? You know, where, where's the future direction there? What are your thoughts on how they're doing? Yeah. So multi-account architecture is difficult and landing zone, landing zone was the precursor to a uh, control tower. And in many ways it's landing control tower is landing zone with the UI. It's like migrating to cloud in general, using control tower for getting started with multi-account architecture can be transformational for uh, organizations and um, improving their provisioning process. There is a lot to be desired though, regardless of whether you use that or anything else for automating your AWS setup, uh, there's a lot of glue that needs to be, that you're gonna need to add anyway. So you have to invest in some security automation and engineering. But it's yeah. a great start. So, and that was the big thing. I mean, historically, I go back, oh, maybe three years now, and we were talking with our AWS solutions architect. The question came up of account vending machines, and at the time, it was, yeah, it's a great solution, but it takes so much work to be able to implement. And this was before any of anything was out there. Even you know, organizations were still a really new concept. Definitely. And it, you know, it was just. 
they're, they're like, you, you need so much work. You're going to spend all of your engineering time solving this problem. So every step they're taking helps, but definitely there's still such an engineering effort to do that right. And the amount of glue, yeah, that'll be, it'll be curious to see how that one plays out over the next two years. Yeah. Um, Cause again, like you said, we need to make this more automated, more obvious and easier for everyone to be able to deal with so that we have fewer issues. Yeah. I do wish that the account deletion and deep provisioning process was a lot easier because uh, especially if you're setting up control tower uh, and landing zone with, for like a training environment, the cleanup of those resources can be difficult and expensive and time consuming, right? I actually, when I was uh, setting up a training program for that, I, I found myself missing the Azure resource management approach a lot because if you want to clean up a resource, you just delete the resource group and boom, it's gone. Because uh, the resources are tied to the resource groups and uh, subscriptions, whereas with AWS, it's not. Yeah, it takes a lot more. And we actually have a tool internally. It's called Janitor, but it's an automation of, I think, AWS Nuke to go through our dev account and every week blow out all the resources because somebody had that issue and it's so hard to get everything deleted um, they had to script it out to be able to go through and find every resource in every uh, region and clear them all out. And, you know, that's that's difficult within AWS to shut it all down. Uh, yeah. I'm sure we've all seen that horror story of somebody who's like, I keep getting billed 12 cents a month and I cannot <laughs> explain why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen um, in my consulting days, I saw some companies take the approach of just submit the request to close the account and then get billed for it for three months, and then and then AWS will shut it down. Um, and in some ways, that's that can be the easiest way to deal with it. But you should definitely open source janitor. I'll have to check into that one. I think mostly it's just the scripts around the tool, but we'll definitely link up to the main tool in the show notes, as well as links to all your information and uh, your Twitter handle as well. Uh, you know, you mentioned people can DM you. What is your Twitter handle? Uh, KMcQuaid3. KMcQuaid3, great. And we will we'll definitely link that up just to make it easier. People can see that in the show notes and that gets embedded in the MP3 and everything. How's things at Salesforce right now? You mentioned kind of everything going on. We're still in the pandemic phase for you know context of anyone uh, who catches this much later. It's right now, late May, 2020. And so of course that's a big issue, the pandemic. How's everything at Salesforce? What's going on with the technology org there? Yeah, well, um, we're making it and uh, we're still hiring uh, a lot. And I wanted to make sure that we, I know a lot of people have been hit hard with the, the pandemic and also how it's affected the economy and people have been losing their jobs. And so if anybody is, has been, especially if you've been affected by the economic effects on the pandemic, uh, from the pandemic, you know, we are hiring a lot. We have open spots in infrastructure security, AppSec, open spots for technical project managers, red teaming, GRC, and, and systems engineers in general. So uh, feel free to reach out to me if you're interested. And yeah, yeah, lots, lots of opportunity there to be able to uh, find a new position if you're looking. So that's that's good to hear. I mean, that's always a good thing. Um, you know, to be at a company that's hiring and looking for new people in the middle of something like this. There's some reassurance yeah. there. Yeah, definitely. It's a good spot to work. I, I love it here. So 
Good to hear. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seems like you're, you've been smiling this entire time. I know we're not, uh, we're a podcast, so people don't get the video feed, but you've been smiling this entire time, having a great time talking about all these tools, I assume yeah. that continues in, into your daily work of actually producing them and yeah, it all yeah. Done. yeah, definitely. So, all right. Well, thank you for the time. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share Inform, you know, what you've been up to with these tools and be able to get that out to our audience and tell everybody about it. Any last closing thoughts? I definitely encourage anybody out there to, if you have a really cool security tool that you've been working on internally that has been helpful to your organization, um, definitely open source it. It'll help a lot of people and more people will notice it internally as well. It was a lot of fun to do that interview. That last point, though, it really stuck with me when I heard him say, which is, if you have an internal tool, look at releasing it, not just so other people outside the company can benefit, but also so more people inside the company can benefit as well. And so that's, that's where I'm looking to continue that discussion with Shag and Keith. What are your thoughts on that? How How many companies they're finding when they open source stuff, even their internal employees, they, you know, learn about it who wouldn't have otherwise heard about the product. Have you heard about that happening? So, you know, it's, it's struck me, especially lately, a lot of real enterprise focused companies finding that it's a better way to kind of socialize what you're doing to get those things that would be proprietary and increase the conversation around them. It's kind of an iron sharpens iron sort of perspective too. I think you get dialogue from outside, you get other perspectives. Capital One is one that really stands out to me as a company, like a big enterprise company that's really investing in that uh, as well. I know Salesforce is a good example coming from Canard, but just looking at what they're doing with Cloud Custodian and some of their other projects where they're really like taking that idea that you just talked about and investing in creating an open source ecosystem around fintech software and trying to socialize it within their own developer ecosystem, you know, internally, and then bringing that interface to the outside as well. Um, I think they've got a whole team focused on that. And Cloud Custodian is just one example. It's, it, it's neat seeing enterprise-focused companies that have a strong investment in security and um, the privacy of their data still finding a way to get the software that works with all that out there in the public where we can all use it and all find ways to improve it and contribute back to it. And it's, you know, it's just one thing feeds another. And another way I think that stood out is like, you look at the things Stelligent does on our own blog. So many of our recent blog posts are focused on DevOps automation and security and really focusing on that. Like, you know, what we're doing internally, we're trying to find ways to socialize our own software that one engineer writes with other Stelligent engineers, but also finding ways to socialize it to the rest of the um, DevOps community. And so, you know, I think when you open source things, it, it forces you to take the time to talk about them and document them well and write about them. That has a powerful impact wherever your audience is, internal or external. And yeah, the documenting it to share. It, it just, oh, it's an internal tool. Maybe the documentation doesn't matter or doesn't get the focus. But the idea that this is going to be a something that's out representing the company to the world, let's make sure we've got all the documentation really well done. That feeds back into making it even easier to use internally. Yeah, it's a really natural way to hold yourself accountable. I was thinking of all the, uh, the open source tools I've used um, 
uh, as an engineer, um, and it, as as Shag mentioned, uh, Cloud Custodian is a great tool. They open sourced it, and you know you work with companies that want to you know con- control resources, um, and using it is a it's a great starting point. You don't have to write code; it's maintained by a community. Uh, there's other tools I've used, um, like Cloud Tracker, which uses Cloud Trail to to determine uh, least privileges or or overprivileged um, roles and in, in uh, policy documents. So yeah, there's a lot of these great open source security tools that, you know, they just get better being in the community. You know, you mentioned the community aspect of it and having a group that when you show up at a conference, there's people that you may only see at that event, but because of that community, you're really well connected to them the rest of the year. And it's a, a good chance to be able to see people and have that connection and feel like you're really part of something and be able to share successes. Yeah, it reminds me of our own product. Uh, you go you go to, um, you know, reinvent and, and tell people you're, you work for Celligent and they say, oh, you're the CFN Ag people. I mean, it is it is community open source, but it's still tagged to us uh, at Celligent here. And I know they've been adding quite a number of rules to that as well, based on feedback that we get from the community of where we have rules that people would like to see. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear about other use cases too, you know, and you, you get a perspective on where people take their soft, your software and maybe apply it in ways the, that you weren't necessarily expecting. Back to the, the blog post, Shag, you mentioned kind of the security aspect and brought that up. One of them was our Trend Micro uh, Smart Scan blog post written by Shauna Coyne. That was definitely focused on how do we make sure that once we built a container, it actually is secure, that we, we can test it. We know there's no known bad code or malware or any of, any of the other things that Trend catches in that container built in. He even used one of the virus samples. I didn't realize this, that there are virus samples out there that are designed to be safe, but be detected so you can test and make you know actually validate that the scanner is catching what it should. And so he used one of those to prove that Trend Micro was properly scanning the containers and doing what it said it would do and rejecting containers, stopping a build pipeline when it has something in there it should. That was a really good read this week, you know, on our blog that I saw from Sean. What about you or Keith? Have either of you seen anything on the blog that caught your attention? Well, yeah, you know, I was thinking just as far as the virus signatures and things go, it reminds me of ages ago when I was a male postmaster, you know, kind of admin, uh, doing something similar with virus scanning at the, you know, your email egress entry points. Uh, you can get virus uh, signatures added to your, to your, uh, like, you know, send mail, postfix, things like that to do the same thing. You know, I've only ever dipped my toes in those water a little, those waters a little bit. The fact that there are signatures out there that are designed just for verification of your code purposes itself, I think is a, is a pretty neat feature. As far as the blog goes, we have two posts in a series on Amazon Inspector, first introducing it and then describing a way that you can make use of it in your image baking pipelines. And I, you know, I, th- I think it's a great tool. It's a little, Inspector itself can take a little while to run. So when you can automate it and work it into your Omni creation pipelines, I think it's a, it's a fantastic way to make use of it. And Jeff Barr actually tweeted out that blog post today. So that was cool to see even, you know, him picking it up and sharing one of our blog posts because it's such a valuable demonstration yeah. of the tool. And always exciting to see Jeff Barr retweet something for us. Just talking about policy sentry and cloud explaining, and I even mentioned the cloud tracker, reminded me of the blog post from Eric Kasich for a thought experiment slash tool called CFN Leapfrog, 
which can generate those policies for you. One thing that really stands out to me here is that Eric Kasich has been on a run lately with blog posts that are giving open source code as proofs of concept for ideas he has about ways to improve your DevOps security. It's almost like open sourcing the conversation, right? You get a lot of people involved in the thought process and you know how to fix, fix these problems. We also had Paul's article in Forbes, uh, 3.5 million cybersecurity jobs will be open but unfulfilled by 2021. And you know, his article was getting into how do we look for things that, that need to be automated and how do we find ways to do it through AI and through machine learning to look at these security issues and build better profiles to try and alert us to things that are happening, but we may not even know they're an issue yet. You know, it, it wasn't on our blog, but it was definitely Paul Duvall, our founder, continuing to write. And you know, so much of this is so timely too. If the entire tech industry all over the world is working from home, you know, there's so much focus, I think, on corporate security and infrastructure security. And that extends to your application and platform security too. Part of the discussion with Canary when it went down, how do we help developers be thinking about security on a regular basis? And these tools and the automation are definitely part of it. Another part, and this is kind of why you're here today, Keith, is to talk about the Stelligent Book Club and why we've created one, the culture that it's creating, and how Stelligent's utilizing the book club to really enhance our engineers. What kind of led to that foundation? How did we end up with a book club and you in charge of it? Sure. Well, I don't like to think that I'm in charge of it. I hope everyone <laughs> feels like it's theirs. But it, it, was, it was an idea I had late last year. I'm an avid reader. Um, last year, I I had a res, uh, New Year's resolution to read 100 books. So I was reading a lot last year, more so than usual. Uh, and, and I was including books that I like to read for work. So um, actually, again, Eric Kasich had recommended some, some books on testing. Uh, so I was kind of reading those on my own. Um, it was uh, test-driven development and uh, specification by example, uh, which they're both great books. I think I was about halfway through specification by example. And I was like, man, I wish I could you know, share this with somebody. I, I mean, I don't know very many people that <laughs> outside of work that I could talk to about, about specification by example. <laughs> uh, so I got on our Slack and I said, hey, I'm going to you know, start this book club channel and we'll see where it goes. You know, I didn't have really any plan for, for it. So, you know, a whole bunch of people joined it. There was a lot of interest. And so we you know, decided on a book to read. Um, I believe the first one we read was uh, Clean Architecture. So that's by Robert Martin. So we all jumped into that. So we're all engineers. That So the idea is that we would read engineering, you know, job-centric books in this book club. So we jumped into that and there were mixed reviews on it. You know, some people enjoyed it. Some people thought, you know, Clean, clean Code, his other book was better, uh, which I haven't read. So yeah, we, um, we would read, uh, we would read parts of the book, I think, the first, you know, it was, a, it, of, of course, an iterative process <laughs> of, of reading, you know, some of the book and then, and then uh, meeting on it weekly and discussing it for an hour. We, we found that the first time through, we were kind of reading too much each week. So we, we pushed that back to um, like a little bit less for the next book. Uh, and we're all very busy. So not too much time to read, you know, uh, 50 pages of a in-depth, you know, architecture book. After that, we read Accelerate. So that's a great uh, research book by Nicole Forsgren, Jez Humble, and Gene Kim. You know, reinforcing a lot of people really like that book. It, it really reinforces a lot of the DevOps principles and 
um, really gets at the heart of what makes a great, you know, agile uh, DevOps uh, culture, a company, you know, more so than just tooling. It's about like culture and things. So um, there's a lot of great discussion around that. Uh, and then the next book we read was People-Centric Security. Some of the feedback, again, was mixed about that one. <laughs> I think at the end, it was Xavier, who uh, we mentioned at the blog post. Uh, it was just him and I kind of uh, reading it there at the end. The feedback mostly was, uh, you know, it has great concepts, but it's it's more for, you know, C-level and those type of leaders in an enterprise that, you know, kind of, it's very high level, you know, not a lot of, you know, engineering meat. So the last one was A Year Without Pants, which was kind of a lighter book. You know, we, we wanted to kind of pull back from engineering uh, kind of literature, I guess. So we read The Year Without Pants by Scott Burkham. Uh, it's about his experience at WordPress uh, when they were uh, one of the leading companies in, in uh, remote work. So Stelligence, a remote company. So we all work remotely. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of parallels and, uh, you know, we could identify with. And our timing on that one was kind of unique. We started reading that one just before the pandemic hit. And so it was kind of interesting reading this book about working from home. Everyone in the world is having to make this transition. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it also reminds me of another reason uh, that, that, we, that I thought about starting this book club was being a fully remote company, there's not a lot of water cooler kind of talk. And and I felt, um, so I've worked remotely for, uh, for over 12 years. Um, and I've always felt this, you know, you, you really need to work at it, work at fostering, you know, these conversations whenever you you work remotely. And a lot of times um, I would pair with engineers at Stelligent for, for a problem that might take maybe 10 minutes. Um, but you end up, you know, talking another 20 minutes and it's not always just about that problem. We, we kind of need this kind of social outlet where we could just get together once a week, talk about a book. Also, just talk about, you know, what we're working on and how it relates and things like that. I know I've used it for that every once in a while. Uh, during people-centric security, I fell off the reading pace, uh, I think, on the third week. I still made it to a few of those discussions just to listen in on the ideas, which was really nice. Even though I hadn't been able to get the reading done, hearing people talk about it, both hit that social uh, connectivity and being around people kind of a need. But it also was a great way to still be learning, even though I was too busy with other stuff to be making the reading commitment. And I, I found that incredibly valuable. Do you know what the breakdown is of how many people are actually reading a physical book, the Kindle type device versus listening to it on an audiobook? I, I don't know. Um, I, I know there's there, there was actually some interest in, you know, the audiobook people <laughs> that, that, you know, really like to just listen to books. Uh, they actually wanted to make their own book club for, for just audiobooks. But I, I mean, I'm a, I liked reading physical books. So I know I, I read a physical book uh, when I can. Now, A Year Without Pants, it was, it was free a couple months ago. So that I just grabbed as an ebook from Amazon. So yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly the breakdown on that. A lot of the a lot of the books you read, so they're uh, very technical. They don't have great reviews on their audiobooks. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of people are listening to audiobook versions. Well, and, and you mentioned that the Year Without Pants was free for a short while. I know that's not the only book that we've seen come up in the channel as, "Hey, it's free right now. If you don't have it, grab a copy," which is a great way to expand your library with some of these books. Just having a bunch of people 
that are all looking at different technical books see oh hey this book went you know it's free for whatever reason go grab it i know i've seen that in some of our other channels we have a channel dedicated to kubernetes and sharing what we learned some of the courses that are regularly quite expensive when they hit sales people throw it out and hey if you're new to the channel and you haven't watched this course this is pretty much what we all agree is the best course on the topic go go buy it it's it's inexpensive right now yeah definitely yeah and we also used to have uh, guilds here at Celligent, so that was, I know we had a container guild, I, I don't recall the others. The format was that somebody would, would choose to present something at that at that guild meeting, which, you know, that can take a lot of time. So it kind of fell to the wayside. So I, I think the, the book club is another reason, another way of, of kind of getting the specialized knowledge sharing and conversation without so much time commitment. Did you hit the 100 books? Uh, I actually got to 90 books and, <laughs> and did not get to 100. So close. Maybe another year. Um, I, I took a year off from that. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it's actually very hard to read 100 books. <laughs> that's that's two books a week, almost two books a week, assuming you take yeah. a little, a small break. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Keith, how many of those books were dry technical books? Not, not many. Or not necessarily I, dry, but you know, yeah. Right, yeah, not many. It was a few. Uh, I wouldn't, yeah, test-driven development. I really loved that, so I wouldn't call that a dry book, but... <laughs> But no, I, I usually just read fiction novels, so. You know, with everybody working from home again, you know, I, th I think there's almost this assumption that if you're using Slack or some other, you know, kind of team chat system, you can pretty easily recreate your community that would otherwise be there in the office. Um, and I, I think the things we're talking about really highlight the, the extra steps you have to go to to really ensure that people do stay connected. You know, we've got that weekly sharing is caring kind of tech show and tell for all of our engineers. We've got the book club. We have this blog writing process and the open source sharing and all of those, you know, more than anything, there are ways that we create connection with everybody and we do a lot of knowledge sharing. I, I think especially when everybody's working from home, you know, those are the things that that specifically replace those water cooler conversations and really make your distributed remote community a community. And I think, you know, what you're hitting on there, it has to be an intentional aspect. You know, I wrote about this in the blog post on remote hiring and onboarding. You need an intentional process to replace what may have been happening by chance. You're lucky that it's happening by chance. But in a remote world, that chance doesn't exist of people randomly running into someone and making an introduction or, you know, finding people or even walking by a conference room and hearing people talk about it and being like, oh, wait, who's having that conversation? I need to meet them. None of that accidental encounter exists. And so you need to make sure you think about these places. And the beauty of a book club, a guild, anything that I've seen is that they are not necessarily... Like it's not a department thing. It's not a, a a team thing. It's the idea is that it spreads across the company. And so you can find people from multiple teams, multiple departments, multiple even organizations that are involved. And it, it's a place where you can intentionally have conversation, talk about things, make connections, meet people. And, you know, it's one of those intentional ways to make that happen. So I, I value these efforts yeah. And, you know, I think another aspect there too, is that 
when you're being purposeful about it, you're protecting other people from being excluded by accident. That can happen all too often, I think, for a variety of reasons. You're, you're opening up the invite to everybody in your company. That's a really good point there on the intentionality of including everyone. Every time we finish reading a book, what, what's one thing you've tried to do to share and get more people into the book club? We try to do a recap of it uh, at our Sharing is Caring the following week after we finish a book. And I, I know in the past we've done a poll to just kind of get people's feedback. I think there's like three levels of don't bother reading this book or it, this is interesting or this is a must read. Kind of give that feedback so people know if they should read it or not. It invites anyone into the channel who hasn't, who didn't know about it. If they've just joined the company every eight to 10 weeks, there's a, hey, this exists. This is what we just did. And come join us as we start on the next one. Again, goes to your point, Shag, of being inclusive and inviting everyone. Yeah, and constantly renewing your community too as uh, new people join. Well, I hope this has encouraged everyone both to think about their internal culture and how, how they make security part of it, how they automate that security to make it easier for everyone involved. It's been a really good discussion this month. I'm glad I was here to be part of it. Shag, how do people get in touch with you if they want to follow up? I would say I'm on Twitter as O'Shaughnessy. That's spelled out in our podcast notes. Um, but yeah, that's the best way. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Keith, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, where's the best place to find you? I have Twitter. It's at Keith Monahan. I don't tweet much, but I will definitely get DMs. And I'm Scott Alexander. My Twitter handle is SAlexPDX. And we'll include all of those in the show notes so you can reach out if you have any feedback that you want to send us. That wraps up our 28th episode. Thank you for joining us as we continue our efforts to improve the software delivery process through DevOps on AWS. Thanks for listening. For the latest from Stelligent on AWS DevOps and being a remote-first company, see Stelligent.com slash blog.